us. On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival. We are delighted that you've decided to spend your Saturday with us, and I'm very happy that you're here at the Latinos and the GOP panel. We've got some great panelists that will be talking to us today. Before we get started, I just have a couple of housekeeping things. Please silence your cell phones so we don't have any ringing during the panel, but we do encourage you to keep them out to tweet about this panel if you want to. The hashtag for the festival is TribuneFest, and the, has the specific hashtag for the immigration track is going to be TTF Immigration. We're gonna, we have 60 minutes for our panel. We're going to try to do 45 minutes of discussion and open it up for Q&A for the last 15 minutes. We've got two mics on either side of the room. So if you could just line up there when we get to that point, I'll give you um, the heads up and we can get started with that Q&A later in the panel. I'm going to introduce our panelists. First up, we have George Antuna. He is one of the co-founders of the Hispanic Republicans of Texas, a group that is working to recruit and support candidates running for public office. Um, Mr. Antuna has a lot of experience in politics, and he served as a member of the City Council of Shirts for three years. Next to him, we have Hope Andrade. She is a commissioner of the Texas Workforce Commission, originally from San Antonio. You might recognize her as our former Secretary of State. When she was appointed to that position in 2008, she became the first Latina to hold that position. Then we have Aaron Pena. He is a former state representative from the Rio Grande Valley. He was first elected to the Texas House in 2002 as a Democrat. He then switched over to the Republican Party in 2010. Now he helps some of the campaigns and the Republican Party of Texas with their Hispanic outreach. We also have Jerry Morales, who is the mayor of Midland, Texas, born and raised in Midland. He became the first Hispanic mayor of the city when he was elected last November. Before that, he served as an at-large city council member for five years. He also is a restaurant owner of Gerardo's Casita in Midland. And finally, we also have State Representative Jason Villalba, who was elected to the Texas House in 2010, representing the Dallas area. Representative Villalba is a business attorney, and he is one of only three Hispanic Republicans in the Texas legislature. Recently, he's taken to traveling across the state in a series of speeches encouraging the GOP to reach out to Hispanic voters. We are going to go ahead and get started. Obviously, this election cycle, there has been a huge emphasis on Hispanic voters and outreach to Hispanic voters. Good example of that was last night's debate between the candidates for governor in the Rio Grande Valley. We've seen, we've seen Spanish language ads, Spanish language websites, all, sort of, all sorts of outreach out there. But then on the other hand, we also have candidates who have used some rhetoric that has, that has drawn criticism. Um, Attorney General Greg Abbott, when talking about a South Texas a bribery investigation in South Texas, referred to corruption in the area as third world practices. We had um, Senator Dan Patrick, who is running for lieutenant governor, talk about um, an illegal invasion when referring to the influx of undocumented immigrants to the border. So I want to start with Representative Villalba. How can the GOP reconcile its efforts to reach out to Hispanic voters when you have two of the top candidates running for office for the party using this sort of rhetoric? Well, the rhetoric is problematic, right? I mean, we see that over and over. When you use that kind of rhetoric, you alienate the Hispanic population. And Hispanics are apolitical anyway. 
when they hear that kind of rhetoric, they just tune out and we lose them. So there's no question that we have to address it. But I think you see both of those candidates specifically have done an excellent job of recalibrating. I mean, Senator Patrick, a you know, true conservative patriot, you know, people, somebody that we really like, I think you've seen him use different language more recently than he did during the primary. I think he recognized that that might have been a problem uh, and then now he's done what he can to really engage. And so I think he recognized that. You know, Abbott's comments, I think, were taken out of context. He was referring specifically to the corruption as being third world, not referring to the region, the Rio Grande Valley, as, as uh, third world. So, you know, last night during the debate, you heard uh, Senator Davis over and over make that point, but I think she was taking that out of context. In regards to your question, look, we've got to do a better job of articulating the message that is important to uh, Hispanics, and that is we are the party of opportunity. We are the party that protects the unborn. We are the party that believes in supporting and facilitating small business. If we can uh, engage the community and share our message of general conservative philosophies like that, we win them. As Ronald Reagan said, you know, Hispanics are Republicans. They just don't know it yet. And I think our job is, as Hispanic Republicans, and as Republicans in general, is to learn to articulate our message in a way that's not offensive, uh, in a way that we can really engage the community in ways that they understand, about talking about families, talking about opportunities, talking about uh, what it means to be a part of this great conversation in Texas. And if we do that, I think we win. You know, George W. Bush proved that with 49% of the vote. Uh, when he last ran for governor, a Hispanic vote. Uh, and I think you're seeing it in different parts of the country from people like Senator or, uh, Governor Martinez in New Mexico, overwhelmingly Democratic state, yet she wins Republican, uh, Republican vote and the Latinos. And Senator Marco Rubio or Chris Christie up in New York, all people who are in Democrat regions who are able to engage and talk about these issues like, like I just mentioned, and then they win that vote. So it's possible. We've got to do a better job, and I think you're seeing that right now. Representative Feña, you are working with the Republican Party in their outreach efforts. Tell us a little bit about what they're doing on the ground. Well, you know, the first thing that has to be done, and I think uh, everybody's doing that, is that is engaging our community. Not just coming down during the election season, which is a, a regular complaint that we have down on the border, which is, you know, we see you all only during elections and then you go away. Uh, communicating with people, uh, having a relationship with them, General Abbott has really done a good job. He's got an organization down there that's phenomenal. We've not seen Republicans engage South Texas like, like General Abbott has. And quite frankly, I think the message is not only for demographic reasons, but uh, the realization that, that the future of Texas is really in this emerging demographic. We've heard it uh, many times uh, from our demographers telling us about the future of, of the state and where it's going. And I think... Uh, you know, our party is responding to the market or else we will simply cease to exist. We'll become a minor party for the South. The people on this panel here today believe that there's another way and that and we're, we're trying our very best to reach out and to communicate the message of inclusion. Quite frankly, our community, as Jason said, is like the rest of the American population. We are, we are immigrants who are going through an immigrant stream that has been that has been followed by the Italians and other ethnic groups before. We're no different than any other Americans. But you have to be respected. You have to be engaged. And I believe that we're making those efforts. And in Texas in particular, you will see that uh, the polls will show that Hispanic Republicans are on the rise. Yeah. Uh, in other states, it may not be the case. But in this state, 
we believe that we're doing an effective job. We have challenges in front of us. We'll have outliers who will say a couple of things, and we, I think, need to denounce that sort of, those sort of comments because the world is changing, and we have to adapt. Thank you. Let's talk about the inclusion aspect a little bit. Um, I've spoken to a lot of political scientists who have said, aside from the policy issues, Hispanics quite literally need to see themselves within a party. We don't see that representation as much in the Texas legislature on the Republican side, whereas Democrats have it covered when it comes to minority representation. A lot of that might be the challenges um, that Hispanics face in running for public office, and we have two perfect examples here of first in their positions. Mary Morales, tell us a little bit about what you think might be some of these challenges that Hispanics might have to overcome. Sure. Well, let me say, when I first got into, I guess, the game of politics, the, uh, it was in 08, and uh, I've been a restaurant owner all my life, with, or working for a restaurant corporation, and being a small business owner, living the, the American dream and, and doing what I want to do. And, and it's exciting, but it requires a lot of time, uh, and especially when you're in the retail industry. So uh, I, when I got asked by or recruited by a mentor, Jose Cuevas, who is also a restaurant owner, but very, very involved with politics, he said, you've got to do it, and, you've, and you can run because we need some of the Hispanic and Latin representation on the city council, mm-hmm. uh, but understand that it's going to take some time. There's some work. Back then, it wasn't so busy in Midland, Texas. Uh, things were kind of calmer, and uh, I was able to commit the time that was needed. Uh, we did run when you campaign. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's local or state level. It requires a lot of your time in getting organized. So one is identified there is a need for uh, Hispanic representation uh, in, a, in a growing community. Two is uh, glad to be representing the retail industry, the smaller American dream industry. Uh, and, and so with that being said, Moving fast forward, being this mayor in the new seat of a very dynamic and growing city, it is taking all my time. Uh, and it would be a story that I would tell to future leaders that, you know, uh, make sure that you have your foundation. Make sure that you understand uh, that your business is in control, that you have your family life. And there's balance in your life uh, because we need the representation out there. But at the same time, we don't want to lose everything that you created and what you started. That's, where, that's, what, who, that's what who made you and that's what got you where you are today. So... It's requiring a lot of time today, uh, being in the mayor of the city of Midland. Commissioner Andrade, talk to us about Latinas in the GOP. We, that representat- representation is a, a bit, you know, even less at the state level. We've seen a lot of that more in, at the community level, local level. But talk to us about, you know, when you were appointed, were there any concerns as you considered whether to accept this appointment and, the way, and your journey to get there? Well, when I was appointed, uh, there was no question in my mind that, of course, I was going to accept this position. I was honored and flattered to uh, be able to uh, serve in this position. But I will tell you, uh, first of all, let me share how proud I am of my fellow panelists um, for everything that they do. But it's up to us uh, to make sure that we get out there as much as possible so that other people can see us. Because the perception of the Republican is not necessarily what we look like. And so it's up to us to make sure that we go out there and let people know. You know, I always used to be hesitant sometimes on giving a story or an interview. And finally someone said, look, there's not many of you. You need to do this. And so I think our responsibility, or at least my responsibility as a Latina, is to make sure that uh, I step out as much as possible, that I visit, especially with our young men and women, so that they can see that Republicans do look like us and that we are a party of family, of faith, of freedom, 
and opportunity, uh, like Representative Villalba had says. And, you know, I like to think, or, or it's often said, that uh, I was a Republican when it wasn't sexy to be a Republican. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but I was a small business owner, and I grew up in a family that was not political. Uh, my father was from Mexico. We didn't talk politics at the dinner table. And I didn't really get involved until I became a small business owner. And I realized that that was important for me to look into what would help my business, what would help my employees. And so when I researched that, I, I felt more in line with uh, the Republican Party. And also, uh, um, I, was, I was welcomed. And that was important. Uh, when I attended events, when I visited with candidates, uh, it, I was welcome. And I think that we need to do that. We need to reach out. We need to help educate. Uh, and we need to welcome people into our party. George, you're on the behind-the-scenes aspect of this. Tell us a little bit about how does the financial cost of running for public office, um, what, what role does that take in when a candidate is deciding whether they're going to go ahead and pull the trigger? Well, I think that's why Hispanic Republicans of Texas was formed. Uh, back in '09, it was because of the mere fact that me and George P. Bush and Juan Hernandez got together and we're like, there has to be a way that we can help finance some of, some, or at least jumpstart some of these candidates that not only want to run for state rep or state senate, but want to run for county commissioner, want to run for mayor, school board. You know, our, our whole concept was, you know, we want to elect individuals from the courthouse to the state house uh, and beyond. And so uh, we needed to, to have that type of mechanism. Uh, as a pack to be able to raise resources because there was a lot of packs out there, but they were all helping only individuals at the at the state house or or, or or senate or beyond, and so that's why we were formed. Because first and foremost, we needed to form a bench. We ne didn't necessarily have a bench, and uh, like one of our uh, board members, Ron De Pablo, says, we d we didn't even have a farm club you know, to, to to be able to draw from, and so we needed to start at at, at you know at that level. And now we do. We have individuals like, of course, uh, Mayor Morales and, uh, and uh, Naomi Narvaez at the Hayes County uh, ISD, and then you know, uh, John Longoria at the Corpus Christi ISD and beyond. And, and, and these are the kind of folks that we're going to be looking to when there is an opening at, for state uh, rep or, 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 or county judge or, or other positions uh, above that. But until HRT was formed, there was no mechanism set up that would address that issue. And at the end of the day, until Latinos start seeing more of themselves on the ballot box, it's going to be very hard for you to recruit more Latinos into the party. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, we can't talk about Latinos in the GOP without talking about immigration. Let's go back a couple of months to the GOP convention this year in Fort Worth when Republican delegates decided to vote against any sort of language in the party plat platform that called for a guest worker program or any sort of provisional visa program, and instead resorted to a more hardline immigration stance that we had seen in previous years. Is, this not an op is, is the party not giving Democrats an opportunity to say, hey, look at this, they are opposing this, which is key to a lot of the Hispanics in our state? Unquestionably, right, this is troubling. Uh, I watched the developments at the convention was there that day, 
and had fought uh, vociferously in favor of what they called the Texas Solution. This is the guest worker program that was already in the platform. I thought it made tremendous sense. You know, Texas was actually on the bleeding edge of being very progressive on this issue in the last uh, election cycle, and I think it was very good for uh, Latinos and Republicans because we were doing that. But then this a cycle we see revert back to what it was before, in fact, even more hardline. And I was, I was very troubled by that. I think it's problematic. I think it does uh, lend credence to this argument that as the GOP, we're not reaching out effectively to Latinos. And we show that by you know, our platform include or removes this provision. So we've got a, you know, a battle on our hands, right? Now, I will say this about that convention. If you looked at the way that vote played out, you know, it was supposed to be taken before noon. Before noon, we had the votes to keep it in, but it was delayed effectively using a, a tactic, a maneuvering tactic, and the vote was not held until later that afternoon, three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, by then, people are going back to their places all around the state. So there was a very small, small segment of the party uh, that was there to make that final vote. And look, it's the most distilled of the distilled. It was in Fort Worth. Uh, and because of that, we saw the vote go the wrong direction. Uh, we have our work cut out for us. I fought on the House uh, in the State Affairs with my friend Rafael and Chia uh, to put together a resolution saying we need something like this, a, a resolution that would just say, look, guest worker makes sense for us in Texas. Um, and we need to continue to do that kind of thing. Uh, we're going to have to work. Um, and we have some, some, some work to do. It, it's hard for me to go on the road and preach to uh, my fellow Latinos and say, hey, we're inclusive and we're open, if the party has a platform that just says, no way, no how. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've got some work to do. And, and that's a good point. I mean, I was on the SREC uh, uh, the last term, um, and, you know, we were appointing members to every committee, uh, everything from platform to, um, uh, to other uh, committees, rules, and what have you. And a lot of the folks that we were talking with on the platform committee, they were saying, yeah, we support the Texas, the, the Texas solution from two years ago. We want to keep it. And, and for all practical purposes, it was, it, you know, they started Monday, the, the, way before the convention started, which was uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Mm -hmm. But they started Monday, and they were like, they were saying, hey, we like, we like the Texas solution. It addresses border security, it addresses a guest worker program, it addresses a lot of the issues that were very, very, very uh, uh, concerning to a lot of individuals. And so then, you know, we move forward, like, like Jason just said, we move forward to the state convention, and then all of a sudden, uh, on fr Saturday morning, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of happens. And it was very unfortunate because of the mere fact that going into, the into Saturday morning, the platform was basically going to stay the same on the Texas solution. And we do need a good guest worker program. There's a lot of, lot of individuals that don't want to necessarily stay here. They want to be able to go back and forth and visit their family members and not have to bring them over. They want to be able to cross over and then come back in the weekend or two weeks later and what have you and be able to not have to be facing retribution at the border. And so those are the kind of things that I think we need to be addressing. In my opinion, guest worker is not amnesty. Guest worker is addressing a lot of the issues that a lot of Americans aren't necessarily willing to, to work at. You know, you know, back in the day, you know, working at a meat processing plant and coming home smelling like you know, uh, uh, you know, blood and what have you from, from a, a processing plant, that just happened. I had a lot of neighbors that worked at the Smith, Smith processing plant in downtown San Antonio. And you remember Smith, right, downtown San Antonio. And so... You just aged me. <laughs> I aged myself. 
And so those are the kind of things that, you know, I used to see. But you're not seeing today's youth wanting to jump into, uh, like my dad did, picking cotton, and, and like my, my grandfather did as a sharecropper in and, and, and Wilson County and Carnes County. Those are not the things that, that Latinos are doing and the, our young are doing anymore, unfortunately. They don't just, that's just not what happens. So we need to get a guest worker program in place so that we can address the shortage of, of that kind of labor. Alexa, when, you, when you're coming from a community like Midland who unemployment rate is about 2.8, 2.9, but not just one or two months, but for three, four years now consecutively, uh, it's a challenge. It's an issue. And uh, when, you're, when, you were, when I was watching this Texas Solution uh, discussion take place at the convention and hearing what uh, representative was just saying about people leaving the legislators, representatives leaving the discussion because they were frustrated because it was going in the direction of amnesty and all this other stuff. But yet back home, when I'm trying to figure out how in a growing economy with the lowest unemployment in the state and the nation, that you have these small service companies who need workers, we need a workers program. And it hit home really hard when our party was not standing up strong and coming up with a solution again. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you answer that question when you're trying as, yeah, it is a nonpartisan on the mayorship, but uh, as a Republican trying to go out and recruit more Hispanics into our party because they're in their, their, their businesses, they're starting up their American dream, and yet we can't get, a, get workers for them to continue with a successful business. Wearing my Texas Restaurant Association hat, I'm president of the Texas Restaurant Association, uh, representing about 12,000 members. Frustration. We're all trying to... Uh, <laughs> bring workers into our industry. We're paying in Midland, we're paying overtime. You know, it, most of the restaurants that are paying 60, uh, given 60 hours, uh, paying about $14 starting out. And that's Walmart. That's everything in Midland. It's frustrating. So not to be able to have a strong workers pro- program, not to be able to have your party stand up and fight for that. It, it's a little uh, in, embarrassing in a sense. So we, we've got to continue working together as, as a party. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, sorry, let's talk about young Latinos. Studies have shown that they may be less socially conservative than their parents or their grandparents, that they might not have as close ties to religion and to the church and what have not. When it comes to social issues like gay marriage, equality for the LGBTQ LGBTQ community, access to abortion, are these not losing issues for the Republican Party? And what can it do to reach out to these voters when it's at odds on their perspective on a lot of these social issues? Here's the, the, the fact that a lot of people outside the party don't realize. When I was a Democrat, I thought all Republicans were the same. Okay? The reality is we're a coalition party. We have uh, social conservatives. We have war hawks. We have libertarians. We have a variety of Republicans. And we're all in debate with each other. And one, uh, based on the structure that you're engaged in, like the House of Representatives, which is based on redistricting, or in Congress, a certain result will occur. But that debate is going on in public all the time. The reality about young people, and you're correct, uh, you will see, and I made this comment to the papers the other day, that there is a, a, a boom occurring amongst Hispanic young Republicans. And they are, they are primarily, primarily libertarian-minded. Um, as you said, they're more a libertarian in terms of so, social policy, but they're economic conservatives. And we as a party have to realize that we cannot win without this coalition working together. And so those people who say, well, you're not pure enough, I don't agree with you on everything, so you're not a real Republican, we have to learn, quite frankly, 
uh, that if we're going to win, that we're going to have to be tolerant of other uh, philosophies and, and ways of looking at the world. Uh, those of us who lived through the 60s and the early 70s have a certain uh, cultural baggage that we carry that young people, millennials, don't have. So I will see young conservatives come forward, and, and they no longer have uh, the stigma attached to them to being Republicans. For many of us, um, you know, being a Republican and coming out and saying, I'm, I'm a conservative, I'm a Republican, there's a certain stigma that goes along with that in the black community it's the same way. That is diminishing and does not exist amongst millennials. They are who they are. They don't have to answer to this history that occurred before they were alive. And so we as Republicans, those of us who are over 40, have to accept these young, emerging, conservative, Republican, libertarian-minded members of the public as a solution and not a problem. And it's a real challenge because there are a lot of people in the present day who want to say, you're not pure enough for us, we're not going to accept you. We have to learn, if we're going to win, to be tolerant of other uh, ways of looking at the world. Well, and taking on these social issues that might be a hurdle to overcome for Republicans, not saying that they cannot overcome it. But how do you work toward overcoming it when you have a legislature that is becoming increasingly more conservative and in which the Tea Party is increasingly voting more of its representatives into office that are maybe on the opposite side of this when it comes to young Hispanics? How how do you... Do you, do you see that becoming a problem moving forward as the Tea Party becomes a bigger part of the legislature, Representative? Well, I think that when you deal with social issues, you're not just speaking to one group or ethnicity. So when we talk about issues like gay marriage or abortion, I think we're speaking to the party at large. We have a problem with young people just in general, not just young Latinos. We have a problem with young people in the, in the state of Texas and around the country. So I think you're seeing an evolution on some of these issues that we haven't heretofore seen. I mean, the gay marriage issue will come up. And you're right. We're very conservative in that regard. And I think you'll continue to see us remain conservative for the, for the short term. But I think in the long term, you're going to see some movement on those issues, not only because it's important to win young people, but because just nationwide wide. You're seeing some, some real thawing on that issue. Um, now, I'm, I'm being a pundit here, right? I, personally, I know where I stand, and that's, you know, I'm against that, but I think you're seeing elsewhere uh, people are addressing that. As far as the, the life issue, uh, even among youth, I think you're finding that we're going the opposite direction with respect to life, right? Uh, because I think science has proven that, you know, these entities are, are human beings and we're protecting uh, these human beings in the womb as vulnerable Texans, right? So I don't think that's one of those divisive wedge issues like the gay marriage issue. Um, and so we just have our work cut out for us as a party in general, uh, addressing those issues that are important to our, our youth. I think the way we win them, as Representative Pena points out, is to talk about issues that resonate with them on an opportunity or economic basis, and, that, and they're libertarian They're focused a lot on issues that are pocketbook issues uh, rather than some of these other issues. Look, if we can have a smaller government and more efficient government and give them opportunities to go to college and get good jobs, I think that will be enough to outweigh where we might be on these other issues where we might not be perfectly aligned with the youth of America. But if I can also add, you know, we also need to learn to speak with our younger population in the manner that they know how to speak and, and so we can't give up on them just because we think that they're never going to understand us. You know, oftentimes when I sit with a group of young 
men and women, and I share with them why I am who I am. They may not agree with me, but they respect me. And so I think that's what we, we don't have to, we don't have to give up on our values, okay? But we do have to spend time in educating. You know, a lot of times we, I've often heard say, well, no, let's not go there because, you know, they don't support us. Well, you know what? We need to start going there because it's, gonna, it's not going to happen overnight. This is going to take time, but it's up to us to make sure that we invest the time in helping them understand why we stand for what we stand. The other thing is that, you know, if everyone is interested in reaching out to the Latinos, the way I look at it is, wow, this is our time. <laughs> They're listening to us. Mm-hmm. And so it's our time to speak up. And the other thing that I think is very, very important, because when I was Secretary of State, I spent many, many hours in going out and doing voter education, and that is that we need to let them understand that their vote counts and how important it is for them to go out and take advantage of this most important privilege that we have. But because they don't believe in us or they don't want to, or or they don't think that, that, that we could be the same, doesn't mean we should give up. It means that we should spend more time. And the fact that people are asking us and they're listening to us, we absolutely need to take advantage of this time for us. Let's move to another policy issue, and, and I want to touch on health care. Obviously, a huge part of the conversation in Texas right now, specifically Medicaid expansion. Most of the individuals that would benefit from an expansion of Medicaid would be Hispanics, poor, uninsured Hispanics living in our state. Putting aside all of the political rhetoric and political fight of the Affordable Care Act, is expansion in some form a good thing for Texas if we get more Hispanics insured? And is the party who does that expansion in a winning position because they can say, look, we worked with the federal government even though we oppose this law, but we worked with them to find a way to get you, in, to get you insured? Is, do you, I mean, will we see any movement on this, and because could it be a good issue for Republicans? I, I think I think what we need to concentrate on, especially with the youth, is first and foremost, let's let's work on getting them a good job. Because if you get them a good job, first of all, a good education. If you get them a good education, they're going to get a good job that has the benefits, that has all the things that they that they're looking for to be able to sustain themselves uh, on a personal level. And you know, one one time, probably like ten years ago, we were down at the UT Pan American, and there was a big panel. You know, because you discuss healthcare issues forever in a day, and so uh, back in the day, uh, back in that time frame, uh, we had uh, uh, Dr. Francisco Cigaroa, who at the time was a UTL Science Center president. He just basically said, "Look, if I'm able to educate a young young person, uh, I, you know, and then we get them a good job, and then they get all the benefits that come along with it, then at that point, we've done our job in that respect because." That, that is what you're, you, you're basically are looking for. I don't think Latinos are necessarily, especially the youth, uh, the youth, they're not looking for any type of given. They want to earn it. You know, give us the opportunity to be able to earn it. And I think us as conservatives, as Republicans, should have and have done a great job to be able to uh, open um, more businesses within the state and be able to give them that opportunity. We see increasing costs at the local level. Without an expansion, obviously, that the burden of covering that insurance falls to our local hospitals, falls to local county programs. 
Mayor, Mayor Morales, tell us a little bit about in Midland, with, which has a booming population right now, how are you reconciling these costs without um, having a program that ensures a lot of these poor adults which are coming into your area? You know, I, I don't know that, uh, it, it's all happening very fast, and, and, and I don't know that there is a policy or programs in place. Um, you know, Midland and Odessa are very blessed with philanthropy, foundations, and sometimes we're having to go outside the box and, and look for that community support. Uh, nonprofits come into place, and, and we have to utilize those nonprofits because for the longest time, and, and even to this day, Midland and Odessa, the Permian Basin, have have to sustain themselves, help themselves in every direction. Uh, you're 300 miles from every metro. Uh, you really don't look for that state assistance, and so. Uh, when the nonprofits are in place and they're strong and they're thriving, uh, it seems to be assisting in some of those manners. Then, in turn, your philanthropy, because the economy is doing so well, sustain those, uh, it, you know, keep influxing it with some monetary uh, revenue that it needs, and uh, keeps the program strong so that we have opportunities for these uh, that are having challenges with, a, uh, with the Affordable Health Care Act. Uh, in my own business, uh, I'm having some of the, because we don't offer it and we're under the 50 Employee Act. We're hearing uh, stories now from my employees where they're trying to go get prescription, you know, and it's $1,800, and they can't afford it. And so as mayor, I start thinking, you know, what can we do as a community? Uh, and so I think it's an area that we're going to have to start addressing across Texas uh, in these communities. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you also, uh, kind of going outside the box, is we're having to recruit doctors, uh, affordable do doctors that some of these employees can afford. Um, and what we're doing as a community is taking some of the money from one of our 4A sales tax, the Millen Development Corporation, and putting out recruitment incentives to go recruit doctors so that we can have a diversified doctors, physicians, to take care of all of the individuals in our community. So it's challenging. It's a challenge. It's a growing population, and these kind of concerns are just coming upon us too aggressively. Let me address your question directly. You know, you're asking whether or not you'll see expansion of Medicaid, Medicare in the legislature in this upcoming session? I think the answer is no. I do not think that this legislature is going to get comfortable with ever accepting Obamacare in its current iteration. I think the governor has done a very good job of resisting that kind of burden, on laying that burden on top of the state. And I think he's also been very shrewd in that what he's saying to the federal government is, look, we recognize we have an issue. We know we have uninsured, but we're not willing to do it under your terms. We will do it under Texas terms. So how about a block grant? We've been asking for block mm -hmm. grants for now for two years. I think we're getting closer to that model. I think the feds are going to get closer to that model. There's probably a compromise in place, but I don't right. think you're going to see Texas ever accept the boot of the federal government on our necks when it comes to uh, that kind of insurance. And let me say something else, too, about it. You know, people say, well, this is going to affect uh, Hispanics, and if you do this, that's, that's who benefits. And even my very good friends on the other side of the political aisle talk about, you know, this pie in the sky, we're going to get this great uh, health care. Take a look around the country at those states that have already accepted Obamacare. You know what's happened? One, wait times have increased tremendously, exponentially, to get access to a doctor. Two, their premiums have gone up significantly. And three, it's, you're not even capable of getting access to it because the access points are all now shutting down because it's not working. You want to see what Obamacare is going to do for the country? Take a look at VA care. Take a look at how we treat our veterans today. And that's what you're going to get with you if you get uh, this socialized, nationalized health care program implemented in Texas. So I think the winner of this battle that you point out are those who reject 
the federal government putting their two cents into what we do as Texans? The answer lies in Texas with Texas solutions with Texas, to these Texas problems. We're coming up on our Q&A time, and I want to ask one last question before we go there. Um, I want to talk about in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants, the Texas DREAM Act, and the future of it in the next session. We have had our candidates for, our Democratic candidates have said, we support it, we want to keep this in place. Leticia Vandepute, who's running for lieutenant governor, sponsored the bill in the Senate when it was first passed in 2001. On the Republican side, Attorney General Greg Abbott has said, don't end it, mend it, you know, change some of the things within the bill. Senator Patrick opposes the in-state tuition law and has said he would move to repeal it. How, if we see a repeal, could this be devastating for the Republican Party's outreach to Hispanic voters? I don't think you'll see a repeal. I think you'll see more in line of what General Abbott said. If there's uh, corrections to be made because the body, the, the House and the Senate, which are going to be very different uh, this cycle, uh, decide to do something and a compromise is reached, I think it'll be an amended situation. But I don't think that you'll see it go away. George, what about you? On the ground, what are you hearing from people on this specific issue? Well, obviously on the ground, I mean, you hear individuals that you know, have utilized it. And, um, but I, I'm, with, I'm with Aaron. I think uh, uh, General Abbott is, is going to be more uh, open to it as far as, you know, like you said, don't end up amended. Um, type of scenario, and I, and I think you know I, I was working in the, in, in the ledge and back in in, in 01 and when the, when it passed, and uh, you know tip my hat to Governor Perry uh, at the time for for promoting it, you know for signing it into law and what have you. But I think at that time it was it was it was a very very appropriate, and right now I think we just need to revisit it and see if there's areas that we can improve it. What about from a workforce standpoint? The Texas Association of Business supports the bill wants to continue it. Is it beneficial for employers who want Hispanics who are getting their college degrees, who can obtain work authorization to deferred action? What are you hearing from employers, Commissioner? Well, when you consider what uh, Mayor from Midland just said, that he's got the <laughs> lowest unemployment in the state. And Odessa, right next to him, has the second lowest unemployment. What we should be concerned with is, I think in-state tuition will stay, but I think that we need to find a way to make sure that those young graduates stay in Texas. That's where we will really benefit from. I mean, we've got a real challenge on our hands when we've got the lowest unemployment. And so we have to make sure that we have the right workforce. You know, that's why we need a guest worker program. That's why we need to make sure that we retain this brain power in our state. Because we, we need to continue, but the only way that Texas will continue being the leader in the nation is to have a prepared workforce. And so that would certainly help uh, with some of those staying here in Texas. Well, I want to open it up now to questions from the audience. Um, if you have any questions, please go up to our microphones. I ask that you keep your questions to questions and not statements, <laughs> and please be respectful in addressing our panelists. And we will start on the side. Sure. Hey, y'all. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, my question is regarding uh, the step that the Texas State Board of Education took in April uh, to begin to create a curriculum for Mexican-American studies in our public schools. Um, so, and it was, a bi it was passed in a bipartisan manner, Democrats and Republicans on the board. Uh, I'd be interested to just hear a little bit from each of you on uh, if you think we should take it a step further, if, if uh, Mexican-American studies should be instituted uh, in our public schools, should it be integrated into our, our U.S. history courses? I mean, wh what do you see the potential there for? Who wants to take it? 
Uh, I guess I'll jump in on it. Uh, look, that ought to be an option. That if, if, you, if you want to do that, that ought to be an elective. When I went to uh, UT Austin here, I, I took Mexican-American studies. It was wonderful history that I had never heard before because it, it simply wasn't told or it wasn't told loudly enough. Uh, but every community ought to decide uh, or every, every individual ought to decide whether or not they, they take it. When it comes to mandating the question, that, that's a different question. I, you know, what I believe in is that we ought to teach Texas history, and we shouldn't ignore the realities of what may have occurred, whether it's good or bad. We have some ugly parts of our history. We shouldn't hide from that. We can learn. I mean, we learn from our mistakes, right? And so I think history ought to be taught not necessarily because it's Mexican-American, but it's simply the history of our people as human beings. Uh, but if, if there wants to be a concentrated effort, I think that ought to be an elective subject that somebody has a choice to do, or that local school districts may have a choice to implement. And I think that's what you saw reflected in that decision. I guess being a mayor of my community and, and working real closely with our superintendent, uh, I'm just not a believer in forcing anything. I'm not a believer in <laughs> saying that you've got to do this. <clears throat> you know, I, I really... Uh, love my community and the Permian Basin because it's open-minded. We really, uh, we're not so big now that we don't understand who we are and what our culture is and who we, and where we came from and understand each other. And so, um, you know, the town hall meetings, I'm a firm believer of them. Uh, RSD superintendent does a superb job of, of keeping the transparency and the openness. And so if that discussion or that topic came up, I think we would address it uh, as a community. Next question on this side. Hi, my name is Maria. Um, oh, can you I get like a little bit closer to the mic, please? Hi. Um, I understand that Texas solutions did not pass, and it wasn't um, you all's, you guys weren't really positive about that. You, you really wanted it to pass. Um, but what are your plans to make your party work with you towards that? Because although you disagree with it not passing, um, it didn't pass. So what are your plans on forwarding with that immigration here in Texas? Well, I think the first step is to begin the process of educating fellow Republicans about the importance of that issue. I mean, this is a great first start where you, you're hearing from some of the, the strongest voices in our party about our support for a worker program, a guest worker program, the Texas solution. And I think that filters through the rest of the party. We're hopeful that this educational effort will will result in other like-minded people coming to the forefront and supporting these kinds of initiatives. Remember, the people who voted out the platform were a tiny sliver of the party. We're not talking about a wholesale representation of what Republicans stand for. You can ask Republicans in this room, let's say it's half the room, I bet you 75% of them will support the Texas solution. But at that convention, it's the grassroots activists, it's the people who attend, you know, the walking, uh, walking for Republican candidates. These are the most distilled members of our party, and they feel very strongly against that. Uh, we need to do a better job of getting folks to the convention next time. We need to do a better job of being parliamentarily uh, effective to counteract some of the movements that were done uh, at that, uh, that convention to, to be able to get that vote in the way it was. And we need to continue to get out into the public and, and talk as much as we can about how it's important to engage our Hispanic community. If we do not, if we fail as a party to, to win the hearts and minds of the Hispanic community and, and win a significant proportion of their vote, we shall surely perish as a party. And there's no question about that. The demographics are very clear. The math 
is very clear. If we do not win in the future with this electorate, we will lose uh, any kind of authority that we have in the state. And, and I think it's very important. Uh, going back to the grassroots, I think that's why we need to elect more Latinos in, uh, you know, from the courthouse to the state house, because like uh, uh, Aaron has, has uh, said in the past, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And, um, and so it's very, very important that you get more individuals out there that are going to run, you know, uh, uh, as Republicans so that they can, you know, we can be saying, hey, this is our message and this is what we want to espouse. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, my name is Carl Lindemann, and I'm going to perhaps beat a dead horse that Representative Pena and I discussed last year. And I'm glad to see that some of the notions have definitely come forward this year. And I'm almost tempted to address you, Alexa, as opposed to the other <laughs> panelists, because you're the only millennial there. Uh, and some very interesting studies have come out since uh, about, the, uh, about the characteristics of millennials and Hispanic millennials. And in fact, as I asked uh, uh, Aaron last year, do your kids consider themselves more Hispanic or millennial? And you said millennial identity. And so I'm really wondering if we are looking through a lens here that's strictly that of the baby boomers and the Gen Xers, and we're missing the real deal, that though the vast majority of millennials are Hispanic, they see themselves in a different light than previous generations. Uh, the, the big study that came out that's intriguing, and, I, and, I get, and I'm looking for confirmation in Texas, okay. uh, the Pew Religious Landscape Study that says that the millennials are abandoning Catholicism in vast droves and uh, taking up things like yoga and meditation, uh, which I'm seems sort of shocking. Uh, are you seeing that, and how will you reach out to non-Catholic Hispanics in this way? Uh, they don't fit traditional religious categories. Will you be able to reach people who have no interest in the culture wars? God, that's, you know, we had this discussion last time, and it's a wonderful discussion. And, and it's difficult mm -hmm. because I know that this is being televised, and people who are in the baby boom generation are not going to see it the way I think I see the world and many millennials see it. Many young Hispanics, or what we would call, we baby boomers would call Hispanics, they identify as simply Americans. They, they no longer identify as Hispanics. Uh, I've had uh, several young individuals ask me, how do I identify myself? I'd like to identify myself as, as Native American. And I said, well, okay, you are Hispanic, and so there is some truth in that. You are Native American. But quite frankly, you are whatever you believe you are. When we were in the House of Representatives, when I served there, we had people who would question whether or not a particular member was, in fact, Hispanic. And I ultimately came to the conclusion as the chair of, of the Hispanic Republican organization was, look, if in your heart you believe you're a Hispanic and you culturally identify, you are in fact Hispanic because Hispanics are not a, uh, a particular race. We come in all races. We're simply an ethnicity. We're, we're, we're a culture. And so the question that I find in millennials is they no longer, many of them, not all of them, many of them simply identify themselves as Americans and as people. And the challenge for us is to, is to no longer get involved in the, the culture wars, as you, as you described them, uh, in identifying it with uh, race and ethnicity, which is a problem that the Democrats, quite frankly, are, are stuck in, a mode in. Republicans tend to project 
uh, arguments that apply across the board. And that's an advantage and a strength that we have. We, no longer, we try not to break things down into ethnic and, and religious groups. The reality of Texas, quite frankly, as demographics will show you, is that we're all going to be the same fairly soon. And so this whole issue of are you Hispanic, I, I, I just want to end on this. When, when, I, when I go to Mexico, because I, I live on the border, when I go to Mexico and I say I'm Mexican-American, they say, what do you mean you're Mexican-American? You're an American. There's no Mexican-American. You're, you're an American. And it's interesting to get another country's perspective. Uh, the reality is, amongst millennials who did not go through the 60s and 70s where, where race and ethnicity was a big issue, that's going by the wayside. And quite frankly, I think that's a good thing. Next question. <clears throat> Hi. Uh, I'd just like to start off with saying that I'm a millennial, and I definitely identify as Hispanic. So here's my question. Many Hispanics, including me, think that using the term illegal to refer to a person is derogatory. Mm -hmm. So with that, how could you ever support a candidate like Dan Patrick who openly and unapologetically referred to an undocumented immigrant as an illegal when he has debate with uh, Mayor Castro? And uh, let me finish by saying that actions are illegal. People are not. Do any of our panelists want to talk about the use of illegal and, and whether Republican candidates should turn to more the undocumented term? I give a talk all around the state where we talk about how to articulate our message in a more effective way. One of the talking points is we cannot refer to a class of people at, based on their status. You know, if I get a traffic ticket on the way home and they give me a ticket, I'm an illegal technically, right? I've broken the law, uh, but I'm a person. And the first thing that we need to do as a party is to recognize that while we do have a significant undocumented resident population here in the state, these are people. These are people with families and lives just like ours. They care about and love their children just like we do here in the states. And so there's no question that we've got to do a better job of articulating that. With respect to Senator Patrick, I think he articulated that in a way that he probably would, would, would change. I don't think you've heard him say that since then. Uh, I think he's been a, 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 I think he really genuinely cares about the issues that are important to all Texans. And I think uh, the way, he feels very strongly about this issue. And so do I support him? Unquestionably. I think he's going to be a, a wonderful lieutenant governor. Uh, do I have trouble with uh, some of the language he might have used? There, there ha that happens sometimes. But I don't have 100% uh, faith and believe in every single person I, you know, I support. So we're, as, as, as Representative Pena pointed out, a group of people who are a coalition party. We're not always going to agree. And Ronald Reagan, I love to quote Ronald Reagan, said, if you're my 80% friend, you're not my 20% enemy, right? And we as a party <laughs> are a big tent. And right. if I agree with 80% on somebody, I'm one of them. They're my friend. And we're not always going to agree on everything. We've got to... Oh, I'm one sorry. Thing. You know, sometimes they don't realize that it's offensive to us. Right. The minute that it was brought to his attention, mm -hmm. and there was many of us that called right away and said, right. that is offensive to us. Yeah. That is not proper. It was immediately changed. I see Alejandro here, who's Dan Patrick's communications director, and he was brought in for that, I'm sure for that reason, is help me understand what I should not be saying. Right. And so, you know, I'm not defending him, 
But I'm just telling you that sometimes people don't realize that they have offended us, and it's up to us to speak up and say, you have offended us. Please, if you want us to be on your side, do not repeat that word again. That's right. It goes back to leadership, and I think what some of this, most of this is about is, you know, Representative Viava has been out on the road preaching that and, and educating us and, and making us understand that we should have done this a long time ago. I appreciate seeing this young student, young professional here, uh, bringing it to our attention again. And if we don't start taking the leadership, because I've been watching Representative Viava through YouTube and so forth and his message, and it's making me want to step up and do more because now I'm in a position where uh, in my area the people are going to start looking, Hispanics are going to start looking up to me. And so it's the leadership. It's the circle of influence that we've got to follow. That's right. And we're proud that you're Hispanic. Right. I'm sorry, but we've only got time for one more question. I apologize to those that are in line waiting to ask their question. We'll take the last one first. Hi, my name is Delma, and I'm also a millennial and proudly identify as a Latina. Um, my question is for everybody. So um, there's been a lot of talk about outreach to Latinos um, and young, young Latinos who may not identify, you know, socially conservatively to you guys, or, but they do identify on other issues. You all kind of share the same values. Um, but your party is very, they're not backing away from the voter ID thing and we can't we can't lie to ourselves that the voter ID does not disenfranchise voters of color when there's 44 what is, I'm sorry what is your question we're running out of time yes um, what can you do to let your party know that voter ID hurts Latinos let me just tell you as somebody who deals with candidates all the time voter ID uh, is something that they face and they, they, uh, they embrace all the time. Because somebody like myself who, who understands South Texas politics, South Bear County politics, uh, understands that there, there is a problem with that. There, there is a definite problem with that. Let me just put it into perspective to you. There is a, uh, a lady, and I know that uh, the commissioner knows her too. <laughs> there is a lady in, in, in Bear County that uh, is a big Democrat operative who, by the way, just happens to also own a, uh, a cemetery that they just removed from her because she was violating some laws and what have you. That, that in and of itself, those are kind of things that you, we, see on a, uh, we see on a daily basis on the ground that there's, there's definitely issues with uh, a voter fraud and why don't, why can't you just show an ID to be able to vote? There's, there's no reason uh, not to be able to do that. Uh, in Edinburgh, they had their first elections, and they, sh you know, they had no problem with that when they sh had to show their voter ID, their, their ID last uh, November. I, have I support it. Yeah, I have Go to ahead. add something to that. Um, first of all, as you know, I was in charge of overseeing the election mm -hmm. process in the state of Texas. And I will tell you that it's all about protecting the process. Right. And for you to say that it hurts the Latino vote, actually sometimes we offend Latinos to think that they're not able to go out and get a, an ID. Most people, <laughs> most people are proud to show their ID. They show an ID when they go pick up a prescription. We should be more concerned about making sure that we have mobile sites everywhere so that there is an ability, an opportunity for them to get a, a voter ID. Every HEB should have that. 
But what I'm telling you is that as I travel the state, that's not what I heard. It's about making sure that we're proud of a process that we have in Texas, that, that that's what we want, one that we can respect. Most people thought that they had a voter, that they had to show a photo ID. You know, in years back, okay, everyone knew each other. So when you went to a polling place, the reason you didn't have to show a voter ID is because everyone knew you. But in Texas, we're the fastest growing state. As you know, we grow by 1,200 people a day. People can no longer be responsible for knowing each other. So in order to protect that process, we should be showing a photo ID. Okay? And we should be concerned about making sure that we make those IDs available to everyone, more so than fighting something that has already passed, and it was passed by the people. Yeah, if I could add, because I, I actually carried the bill in part. Um, poll, polling has been done uh, in the minority communities uh, and in, it, in the black community and in the, in the Hispanic community. It's, it's found to be supported 75-plus percent. So some of the biggest support for voter ID comes from the Hispanic community mm -hmm. and even comes from Democrats. When they do polling, uh, actually the Texas Tribune did much of the polling that, that I'm talking about. When they talk about Democrats, Democrats support voter ID. So... We live in a democracy where the majority rules. Obviously, if there are issues that the minority has, and I'm talking about minority in thought, that they have, they, they'll take it up with the courts. The courts, the Supreme Court has already ruled that voter ID is constitutional. The question presently is whether or not the Texas version is constitutional. I believe in the end it'll be upheld. But the bottom line is that this is supported by the public, it's supported by African Americans and the Hispanic community, and so that's why the legislature voted for it. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up there. We are the only thing between you and lunch, so we will get <laughs> you out of here. Thank you so much Thank to you. our panelists for being here today. Thank, Thank you for joining us. The Texas Good Tribune job. has set up food trucks all along the main mall in front of the UT Tower, and Jason, programming will resume at 1.45. Thank you.